Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. And even though, Bruce, we're down to the stretch run of the season, it seems like a lot of what's going on in college football is taking place in courtrooms right now. Uh, clearly, Michigan's big hearing is coming up on Friday. There was a hearing with about Oregon State and Washington State in control of the board uh, of the Pac-12 on Tuesday. And it just so happens we have a legal mind at The Athletic now. I don't know if you're aware. I am aware. I was aware before this, but I but um, I had a bunch of Slack conversations on Friday night um, with that legal mind who has an interesting path to The Athletic. It is athletic commenter extraordinaire turned athletic college football editor and until recently practicing lawyer, Catherine Riley. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. So quick, give us a quick uh thirty second. You what what is your what is your expertise in the law? Like where were you practicing and what was your specialty? Sure. So my specialty was transactional law, actually. So this is a little bit further afield for me. Um rest assured I've been in contact with various litigators in a few different states to make sure that I'm on the right track here. Uh, but I did corporate finance law and a little bit of bankruptcy work for a firm called Vincent and Elkins, um, primarily a Texas firm, but with an international uh, client base and international offices. Um, so primarily I was working with credit agreements, security agreements, uh, when those went south, doing a little bit of bankruptcy work um, and making sure that, you know, the banks were happy, the clients had money and everybody was hunky-dory. So let's ask, let's go into this. So Friday afternoon, I'm in State College. Tony Petiti, the commissioner of the Big Ten, comes down and suspends Jim Harbaugh, even though he said this wasn't a sanction of Jim Harbaugh. He was getting suspended for for the last three games of the regular season. Um, And we knew that uh, Michigan and Harbaugh's attorneys were going to push to get a temporary restraining order to get him back on the sidelines for, for, for games, including the game at Penn State. How did you assess the situation based on your legal background and and what you'd read? Sure. So first of all, that happened on November 10th. And so, of course, the first thing that I did was I opened up the 13-page, highly detailed letter uh, that Petiti labeled as a notice of disciplinary action. uh, And I read through. And the letter was extremely helpful because what it did was it set for a timeline of actions. And as far as the actions go, what it also specified was who knew what about the situation at each stage of sort of the process prior to this moving into the courts. Um, an important thing to note here is that at least as of 11.08 Central Time, 
I have not seen a formal brief from the Big Ten um, filed in Washington court. But based off of the letter, I think that the key thing to know is that the Big Ten had a pretty wide-ranging amount of information and different types of evidence that all sort of led to the decision to sanction Michigan. The important thing and something that I took note of was the specific rule that they were using to sort of justify or to reference back to in regards to the sanction, which was the sportsmanship policy of the Big Ten. Uh, and that is important because that is the main distinction that Michigan and Harbaugh in their pleadings in Washtenaw County Court are taking issue with. Uh, they are arguing that all of this is procedurally incorrect. So they're not arguing that Connor Stallions didn't commit this impermissible scheme. They're really not getting into the facts of that. But what they are arguing is that the Big Ten is in breach of its bylaws and therefore in breach of contract with the University of Michigan. And also that they're interfering with Coach Harbaugh's contract with Michigan. Does that make sense so far? Sure does. Um, okay. The sportsmanship policy is, you know, Bruce and I started talking about it as soon as the Connor Stallion scheme was, uh, you know, disclosed or came out. And, you know, I was definitely um, found it noteworthy how open-ended it is, right? Um, it mm -hmm. kind of gives the commissioner wide latitude to decide what is bad sportsmanship and levy punishment for it. And so here we are. That's pretty much exactly what he did. And Michigan's coming back and saying that, that they didn't apply that correctly. Uh, this has never been used for that purpose before and that the Big Ten should wait on the NCA's process before issuing any penalty. I'll ask you flat right. out, who wins that argument? <laughs> uh, whoever the judge says does. Uh, I'm not going to fall into that trap. But in my opinion, uh, having read the bylaws and read the rules that are being referenced, in my opinion, the sportsmanship policy, I think there is a very good argument that that is separate and distinct from Rule 32 of the bylaws, which is what Michigan and Harbaugh are sort of relying upon when making this procedural argument. Rule 32 of the bylaws deals with what happens when an NCAA violation has occurred, and it includes the procedure for the Big Ten Conference to levy additional penalties if the NCAA has found a violation of the NCAA's bylaws, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is that if that was all that was needed, then why would there even be a sportsmanship policy? And so I think that when you see those as two distinct rules with two distinct processes, then it gives credence to the Big Ten's argument and the commissioner's argument. It's an interesting uh, dynamic how this played out because, and, and maybe this is an oversimplification, Catherine, but you know, you're dealing with mm -hmm two people here who are wildly uneducated in the, on the, on the legal front. So, and so I would ask this, is it as simple as, does it just come down to the person who's in the bench and the ju judge's decision and perspective on this? And that's that because we're dealing with something that's an unprecedented situation. 
I think that the fact that it is an unprecedented situation makes a really big difference here because this essentially we would make a joke that you don't know how good a contract is until somebody sues under it because that's when things are tested, right? Um, and so it's not all going to come down to uh, Judge Connors in Washtenaw County because there's also an appeals process. But the fact of the matter is that this can be rendered moot very quickly because of the term of the punishment that the Big Ten has levied, right? So they said, hey, uh, this impermissible scheme occurred at the University of Michigan. We have evidence to prove it. The NCAA is confident that it would also be able to demonstrate the existence of that impermissible scheme, right? Like we have pictures of Connor Science doing all kinds of things. They have a master spreadsheet that seems incredibly detailed. And I like I hate to say this is funny, but also let's be let's be real here. Is there a better way to learn about the legal system than something as low stakes as whether or not a head coach gets to coach a college football game? Don't get me wrong. I love You think it's football. low stakes. Y'all the people in Michigan don't think it's low stakes right now. And I respect them for that. But I do think that once this moment has passed, they'll look back on this and realize it's not the most grave situation. You know, people go to jail. Um, but all of this is to say, uh, and apologies for that, you know, quick aside, uh, all of this is to say that the Big Ten has set a penalty that is of very limited duration because clearly this is an area where you have to move fast because this is happening very quickly right now and could affect opponents because we know that this was done in advance, right? This wasn't a game-by-game situation. Um, And so all of this is to say that the judge is making a decision here with a very limited time frame. And that's why it's a little bit funny to me that Michigan, first of all, so the letter was issued on November 10th, uh, the Friday, late afternoon, Michigan noted how that, you know, was disadvantageous to them in their briefing, um, which was very good. But if you read Tony Petiti's letter, you'll note that Michigan actually was given an initial deadline for a response on November 7th and asked for an extension to November 8th. So part of the reason why they were a little bit in a bind was because of an extension that they themselves asked for. Uh, So all of this is to say that it will come down to the court in Washtenaw County to determine whether Harbaugh coaches uh, for the Maryland and Ohio State games. But technically, this could go on for longer. I mean, we're still in the phase where we're not even dealing with a preliminary injunction yet. We're dealing with a TRO. And yes, those will become moot after the Ohio State game. But are they going to continue this suit for damages? Or are they just going to give up? Like, I don't know what Michigan's end game is here. I wanted to ask you this because I, um, so on Friday night, Stu, and I, I think I told you this offline, but like, you know, I have a script that I'm working on and, you know, for our show, for our A block and going back and forth with some of my bosses. And one of the questions that was one of the people I work with came up was, well, there's a 14 day window into this. And so I messaged Catherine. I was like, can you explain to me, you know, what's going to happen if, this thing gets signed granted and then all of a sudden is it like moot 
the morning of the Ohio State game because that was the window. And then you kind of explained to me that it's a stopgap versus an injunction. And it again, like, are they back into this point for the Big Ten title game? You know, if they if he does get cleared for Maryland and Ohio State, I mean, watching that team the other day, I know it's a road game, but I feel like Jim Harbaugh or not, they don't need Jim Harbaugh to beat Maryland pretty soundly. I'm not sure they need him to to honestly win any of these Big Ten games, you know, on Saturdays. But right. I mean, is it a case of whatever happens Friday? Well, let's say they do grant it, then all of a sudden he's back on the sidelines for those two games. Then, then do they have to get an injunction right before the Big Ten title game? Like, how does that timeline work? Yeah, so based off of what I've read so far, if the Big Ten attempted to levy an additional punishment, then we would be right back to where we are now. We'd be starting, not to say totally from scratch, there'd be a basis here, but we'd still wind up in a court case. Um, I think that something to note as far as the TRO goes, and the reason why I keep bringing up a TRO versus a preliminary injunction So a preliminary injunction, if that was granted, there wouldn't be a 14-day window. It would just be that, you know, any disciplinary or the disciplinary actions set forth by the Big Ten would be, you know, there'd be a pause, in other words, until trial on the merits was held. That's like what a preliminary injunction does. A temporary restraining order is an emergency order. It is something that, like, is um, done via ex parte motion, which means basically it's done by one party. So Michigan filed this request for a TRO on Friday. The Big Ten technically did not like have a chance to respond. The judge would have been responding only to the like briefing done by Michigan if he had granted it prior to the Penn State game. That's why a TRO is an emergency thing. The only thing that a plaintiff has to demonstrate is immediate irreparable harm. Now, clearly, I don't know if y'all watched the game. I actually do. Y'all did watch the game. Michigan won that game very, very soundly. So it's difficult to really take seriously the idea that this is an immediate irreparable harm, which is why I'm a little bit confused because the hearing set for Friday isn't a hearing for a preliminary injunction we're still looking at whether or not Michigan will get a temporary restraining order. And I, so you, you mentioned a phrase in there, irreparable harm. That's what yeah. I'm really curious about. My understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, is to mm-hmm. the threshold to get, a, a, as you said, an emergency temporary restraining order is that to, some sort of proof that this is causing irreparable, this would cause irreparable harm. And, you know, I read the Michigan attorney, you know, the, the Michigan Harbaugh, argument about it is basically that they're putting their they're putting the schools the schools in contention for the national championship uh you know it's going to be unfair to the players who've worked so hard on for this if they don't have their coach is the big 10 counter to that that you didn't have your you you guys suspended your coach for three games yourselves and it didn't cause Mm -hmm. any irreparable like what would how would they prove reparable harm and if they can't is that the end of it yeah so um, additionally, in, in along with what they said about, you know, obviously the games being played, they also cited irreparable harm to the reputation of the University of Michigan and to Jim Harbaugh. 
Um, so those are also going to be fields of play here. But yeah, I think that as an initial point, the structure of the punishment here from the Big Ten, in my opinion, and again, we don't have briefing filed from the Big Ten with the court. So we're going off of the letter from Tony Petiti. Um, but the structure of the punishment does, as you noted, match pretty much exactly the punishment that Michigan self-imposed at the beginning of the season. Um, and I think that that was likely done, although, again, we'd have to get confirmation of this, but to try and stave off uh, as a proactive measure arguments that this was irreparable harm. Um, of course, the caliber of games is different now in the later parts of the season, especially the Ohio State game. But again, Jim Harbaugh is being kept from three football games, just as he was at the beginning of the season. He was able to coach during the week as he was at the beginning of the season. And so I think that it will be interesting to see whether or not the judge gives a lot of credence to the idea that Jim Harbaugh not coaching will do irreparable harm to either the team or to the sort of more nebulous concepts of his reputation and the University of Michigan's reputation. And we won't really know what the judge thinks until he obviously, like, makes a decision. But I did think it was interesting that, you know, obviously he didn't think that it was so irreparable that they couldn't play Penn State. Obviously, he didn't think it was such an emergency that they couldn't play Penn State. And so that's sort of an interesting starting off point when considering what he'll do on Friday. Maybe the judge watched the Penn State-Ohio State game and was like, you know what, this offense. <laughs> Just not- run it 32 yeah. straight times and you'll be fine. Uh, all right, yeah. pivoting to another legal matter. Uh, you and I mm-hmm. both watched the live stream or the Zoom from this tiny little courtroom in uh in a, in a tiny little county in the state of Washington on Tuesday where the where the Pac2 Oregon State and Washington State um had all, we're talking preliminary injunction on that one right um yes we are it, so that's actually a great example of the difference between the two so just real quick for so the Oregon State Washington State case uh when they first filed for a temporary restraining order they filed on a Friday, and the temporary restraining order was granted on a Monday. Then they moved into the preliminary injunction phase. So well, let's give people a little context. In Michigan. Yeah, let's give people yeah. a little context if they haven't been following this story that closely. Uh, mm-hmm. Oregon State and Washington State are contending that, hey, everybody else you know, gave their notice that they're leaving. We are the sole remaining uh, members of the board. We should have the sole governance you know, power of the Pac-12. And the other 10, led by Washington, who's kind of become, I guess, the the lead plaintiff or defendant in this, is saying, that's not how it works. You know, we've read the bylaws. Uh, This, you know, we're, I guess the number one thing was, we are concerned that if this happens and they get, that they're going to keep all the money for themselves. The Specifically, the media revenue from this school year in which those schools are competing Hey, if they have sole control over it, they could take it for themselves. Uh, the judge, who is this, you know, uh, grandfatherly figure in this tiny little, I mean, he's just a perfect character in this thing. Uh, he listened to oh, three hours of arguments, three hours, and ruled in favor of Oregon State and Washington State. Said, you guys, you know, you're entitled to, to the governance of the conference. It would cause irreparable harm if they couldn't 
proceed and figure out what they're going to do for next year. But then he immediately stayed the ruling until Monday. So Mm -hmm. Oregon State and Washington State won. But what can they tangibly do as the other side is now appealing? Well, tangibly, they probably can't do much. Um, Again, the focus of that particular case is right now there's sort of a status quo that was set by a temporary restraining order where the conference can conduct its sort of day-to-day activities. Um, The board would, like, things that would need to be signed off on by the board would be more major items, right? Um, And so even though the judge, as we noted, did rule that um, Oregon State and Washington State uh, have won their case, at least up to this point, um, and will, you know, serve as sort of a board of two for the Pac-12, they won't be able to functionally do much, um, at least not formally. What this probably does let them do, though, is if they are working with other schools, maybe in the Mountain West, maybe in other conferences, and sort of contemplating uh, next steps as far as increasing the Pac-12 in size from the two schools to additional schools such that they can continue to function, um, that they can work on and they'll have some piece of legitimacy to the idea that what they are planning, what they are presenting uh, will actually be something that is actionable once legal proceedings are, are finished here. There's also, of course, the strong possibility, we think, that um, that there'll be a settlement, right? And that maybe now that the defendants see that the writing is on the wall, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you should probably settle. And if they can settle, then everybody can move on with their lives. Uh, before we go, Catherine, yeah. you mentioned it right off the top, but you've had a unique journey to get to being a uh, editor at The Athletic. For people who don't know, Catherine B. in the comment section of The Athletics, not just college football stories, but everywhere, became kind of legendary. Uh, her writing was so unique. Uh, it was not, it was the opposite of what you usually think of, of like people trolling each other in the comment section. It was very well argued or, or, and you became so famous that we ended up writing a story about you. Tell us why you are leaving the much more lucrative legal profession to join this little uh, sports writing gang. Yeah. So I really appreciated my, you know, time at d in big law. You learn a set of skills that I really don't think you can acquire in any other field. Um, but, you know, the world is wide, the hours are long, and there's other things to do in the world than think about corporate finance and bankruptcy. Um, and so when I made the decision to, you know, leave my firm, and considered what next steps I might take, I thought, well, the people at The Athletic know me. I've chatted with them. Um, Some of the more senior editors, you know, I would discuss different things with them um, after Chris Camrani wrote his profile of me. Uh, And so I reached out and I said, look, I I don't know anything about journalism. Um, I never took a journalism course, but I know how to write. Uh, I have a pretty decent grasp of grammar. And so if y'all would give me a chance to, to edit, then you know, maybe I could learn something and then kind of grow from there. And so I did the edit test, uh, talked a little bit more with uh, Jill Thaw and Matt Brown. Um, and y'all were kind enough to give me an opportunity to, you know, work freelance and kind of start learning the ropes. Well, we appreciate it. You are definitely the only former Jeopardy contestant on the staff. Um, obviously, your love of all things LSU comes in handy. And now, I mean, 
this turned out to be just great timing because we all this conversation we're having on the podcast, like we all need an education uh, this, this in the last couple of weeks on the difference between a TRO and a, and a injunction and all that good stuff. So um, thanks for hopping on today. And I look look for my continued hounding of you on Slack uh, once the you know this Michigan hearing comes down on Friday. Yeah, hope I made things a little bit more clear. Really appreciate the time, y'all. Thanks, Catherine. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, it's time for the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Bruce, our first one comes from Andrew. Why is the man who gave Jimbo Fisher a 10-year, $95 million fully guaranteed deal with no offset and seemingly no other schools to realistically bet against now being given the opportunity to hire a new coach? Should AM have cleaned house entirely? So he's referring to Ross Bjork, their AD. Um, AD is usually don't get many opportunities to to make it after that. I don't think it was solely him who was, okay, let's going to throw as much money as humanly possible at him. Um, A&M's had a lot of success in other avenues of sports on Ross Bjork's watch as well. But this is going to be a tougher hire for them to get right. Jimbo Fisher was an obvious big fish if they could reel him in at the time, having worked in the SEC, having worked under Nick Saban, which is a stamp of approval and certainly winning a national title. The other parts of it, which were probably now look a little more relevant where FSU was starting to crumble under Jimbo Fisher at that point. And obviously he bombed there. And it's a incredibly financially wrought decision they made, but now they're looking up. I will ask you this because, you know, we talked about it a little bit the other day, but there's been more time. If I give you, um, a couple of names, you tell me who you think we would most like. Mike Elko, Lance Leipold, and then I would even throw in Chris Kleiman. I'm not saying all you know, those. Yeah, one guys. guy you 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 mentioned those names all, all along, but what about Matt Campbell, the the hot coach from a couple of years ago, had a rough year last year. And now he's doing better than people expected this year. Yeah, he's. I think Matt Campbell's a terrific coach, um, and honestly, he's he's the youngest of the group. You know, the other guys have been around a lot longer. I don't think the age, you know, Willie Fritz, I think, is more in play for Mississippi State than he is there. But I remember seeing somebody wrote at me um, yesterday on social media and was like, he's 63 for crying out loud or something. It's like, you know what? He's 63. Nick Saban is 72. Brian Kelly is is almost 63. Jim Harbaugh turned 60 like this year. There's a lot of good coaches who 60 are 60 is the new 50. 
Yeah. He didn't actually answer Andrew's question, though, about why there's no repercussions for Ross Bjork. And what I would say is, I think it's a little unique in that Ross Bjork is not the guy who hired Jimbo Fisher. That would be. Oh, I agree. Scott Woodward gave him the original ridiculous contract. And also, let's not pretend that AM people weren't on board with the 10 year. Oh, that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time that was struck, everybody was, this is our guy. He's going to win a national championship here. So I I think think it's an absurd contract uh, that is the worst contract, coaching contract anybody's ever entered into. But Ross Bjork probably gets a little bit of a pass because it frankly wasn't his idea originally. This is different than what happened at Auburn, where like I felt like Alan Green really pushed through Brian Harson, which seemed like a peculiar fit, um, and a lot of people there didn't like it, and he did it, you know, and they did it anyway. So, James C. in San Marcos, California, with Brady Hoke set to retire after the season, and the Aztecs for now it seems on the outside looking in for Power Five conference membership. How desirable is the San Diego State coaching job? Who is seen as the best fit? And Bruce, is there a wild card name that could get in the mix? It is very desirable, especially as a group of five job. There's a brand new stadium. You're in a terrific recruiting base. You're in a really cool city that I think a lot of people would want to live in. And there's some some really good history there. All those things are A plus as far as group of five level. Um, they're going to lean. Everything I heard is they're probably going to lean into the offensive side of it. You know, Brady Hoke was a defensive guy. They were kind of grinding it out with him. And, you know, certainly when, you know, you had Rocky Long, they were certainly on that side of the ball. Now, I think you have some hot candidates there. Ryan Grubb, offense coordinator at Washington, as one of the most explosive offenses in the country, coached in the conference at Fresno State. You know, he turned down the chance to be Nick Saban's offense coordinator at Alabama. I don't think he's going to be anybody else's offense coordinator. I think his next move is to be a head coach. This would be tempting. Um, Brian Lindgren done a really good job as the OC for Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. That's really good. You have, I think, two legit candidates at Arizona on Jed Fish's staff in uh, Brennan Carroll, who knows that area recruiting well from his time at USC. He's done a really good job for Fish, as well as Jimmy Doherty, the quarterback coach, though, and who also worked at San Diego. Those are two guys I think you know who would have a, a real decent shot of getting in the mix. The wild card guy to me, and I don't know if he wants to stay in college, but I think it would be a splashy hire, probably a splashy hire as, as San Diego State could get, barring like, yeah, you can't, it would be if Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury decided, you know what, I want to go a little south of where I'm living now and stay in college. I don't think Cliff wants to, I don't think, to be a college head coach. I think his next move is probably to be an NFL offensive coordinator, but the thing that I think they can really lean into is there's so many great quarterbacks who are, you know, bred in Southern California with the portal. You can get a lot of guys to come back and then you can get a lot of receivers to follow. And I think they, they could really sell that again. I think any one of those guys I feel like would put a big spark, you know, for the Aztecs. Cliff Kingsbury would be uh, quite a, quite a splashy hire. And frankly, just to follow up on that, um, he's kind of been forgotten about, lost out, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Is it possible, you know, better jobs in San Diego State might try to get him? It's possible. You know, I know he didn't do great at Texas Tech. Didn't like, uh, like he's from, he's, you know, he's from New Braunfels. And I don't, you know, in Texas, I don't think if you're, you know, obviously he was a great assistant for Kevin Sumlin when they had a top five season. I don't think you go from getting fired in Lubbock to 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 being the next guy at 
at Texas A&M, you know, it's like the, I think there's a lot of jobs that Cliff could get that I don't think Cliff where Cliff wants to be. I, I suspect, you know, does he want to sit there and grind away at recruiting the way it is now? Would he want to be the head coach of Michigan state? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, maybe San Diego state can, can pull that one off. All right, Stu, this question is from Curian Brooklyn. As the tide rolls towards Atlanta, Jalen Milrow's handling and recovery from the USF benching is stealing all the headlines. But is it fair to say that Alabama's offensive line is a major part of Milrow's transformation? I saw a lot of close-up shots of Milrow's parents at the Kentucky game, but maybe Caden Proctor's family should be getting airtime too, as he was called out by a lot of announcers at the beginning of the season. You know, Caden Proctor, by the way, freshman offensive tackle, not easy to do at any level. It's a great point, and he's right. Um, I mean, we have access to these PFF grades for the offensive linemen, and um, Caden Proctor early in the season was struggling about as much as a as a offensive tackle could. Uh, but you know, obviously, Alabama still thought that was their best option. Um, They've they, Alabama has allowed Jalen Monroe has been sacked 32 times this season. That's a lot, but it's been trending in the right direction the last couple games. You know, there were games in here where he got six sacked six times, five times, four times. Well, against LSU just twice and against Kentucky for the first time all season, no sacks. So I do think Alabama's offensive line is getting better. Um, guys are growing up, guys are getting more experience, and that that plays a big part in, um, in what we're seeing from Jalen Milrow. I noticed Bud Elliott uh, from 24-7, who I think we have a lot of respect for, has pointed out he's more of a cynic, I would say, of Jalen Milrow in Alabama, that perhaps the supposed huge improvement has been more a product of the defenses they've been facing, uh, particularly LSU's, which is terrible. Uh, Kentucky's this past week, even if you go back to Tennessee, where they had the great second half, Tennessee just got rolled by missouri i don't i don't know that so the question is everybody's saying what happens if they get to the georgia game and they beat georgia and texas and all that like it maybe this is a bit it could turn out this is a bit deceiving in that they're not really on the level of georgia uh real quick brian in tucson i should say this Stu, you have a bad habit of interrupting bruce it is rude perhaps more important when you were both talking what you were saying is indecipherable I like the show, but not the interruptions. Okay, uh, guilty. I am aware that that happens sometimes, and I will take the feedback from Brian. Have I interrupted you once on this podcast? <clears throat> All right. Uh, as always, send your questions to audiblepod at gmail.com. Enjoy the football weekend, and we will come back to you on Sunday. How did we get away with the things we used to do?